tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to the feast. Journeys through time in search of a good meal. Today we're heading back to New Orleans on December 22nd of 1846. We're here for a very special banquet held at the luxurious St. Charles Hotel, one of the most prestigious and beautiful hotels of 19th century America. We'll be attending the annual dinner of the New England Society of Louisiana, held every year right before Christmas. Don't let the Yuletide context fool you. This will be no standard Christmas feast. Our dinner tonight will be a whirlwind of regional American and European cooking, taking us from the shores of the Gulf of Mexico to the Black Forest of Germany and beyond. We'll dine in the French style on bear and buffalo, fry oysters and slurp mock turtle soup. We'll admire sugar work to rival the court of Louis XIV and top it all off with a range of cocktails, wine, and liquor that flow as heavily through Louisiana as the Mississippi itself. But before we meet our fellow diners for the evening, let's take a look around 1846 New Orleans. By now, New Orleans is well-established as a cultural and political melting pot, no doubt thanks to its strategic location on the Mississippi River, the gateway to the Gulf of Mexico, and the Atlantic trading routes beyond. Now, Louisiana has been controlled by France, England, Spain, and eventually the United States, who secured the territory only in 1803, thanks, of course, to the infamous decision by Jefferson to purchase it from Napoleon, almost doubling the size of the young USA by over 800,000 acres. Like many Americans in the 1840s, we're itching to explore our country, taking advantage of the relative peace and prosperity, not to mention the new railroads, boats, and stagecoaches that are increasingly available to folks looking to travel the countryside. This wanderlust has spurred a variety of new travel books and guides for the journeying American. We've picked up the newly published New Orleans and Environs at our local bookshop, written by one Benjamin Moore Norman. Norman, who was born in New York, is just one of a number of northern writers to resettle in the city. Published just last year in 1845, Norman's Guide capitalizes on New Orleans' increasing global status as one of the more cosmopolitan cities of America. Not quite the Lonely Planet series, travel books of this period could be filled with a blend of history, geography, and advice as to the steamships or railroads that could convey you from point A to point B. No hotel or restaurant recommendations in this travel guide, Norman's section on the city's gas and waterworks goes on for a languid four pages, not to mention a delightful but extensive interlude on the city's prisons and jail systems. But the back of Norman's guide, perhaps the most practical advice in the book, has helped us navigate our route to New Orleans. And even with the latest steamboats and railroads, it's not exactly the most straightforward route. Starting in New York, 
Norman has a stopping between 20 to 50 times along the way, making the jump between canal ships, steamboats, and railroads, navigating a distance of almost approximately 2,500 miles. But it's worth the journey. As Norman tells us, by 1846, New Orleans is the third largest city in America, its population hovering somewhere around 100,000, double what it was in only 1830. Currently, the city is also in a race with New York to be the largest port in North America. As river traffic down the Mississippi ferries cotton, grain, and beef through New Orleans down to the Atlantic, imported goods, the best of English and French commodities, also must make port here before carrying on up the Mississippi. Steamboats not only carry the majority of the freight passing through New Orleans, but also the steady flow of passengers and immigrants, folks from the northern part of the U.S. keen to visit or make a profit in this European-style city with its Spanish courtyards, French mannerisms, and increasing reputation as a city with a serious love of food and drink. Later generations will consider this period until the beginning of the Civil War as Louisiana's Golden Age. The combination of the steamboat, the continued dominance of the plantation system, and the international cosmopolitan flair of New Orleans helped to raise the fortunes of the city and the state, and even the young United States worldwide, attracting ever more newcomers, either as tourists or residents. Writers, artists, businessmen, and laborers flocked to the city, still the capital of the state, a title it will hold on to until 1849, when it will be moved to Baton Rouge. Even though our voyage from New York has been long and somewhat arduous, we step from the steamboat docks at New Orleans eager to explore the city. We're heading over to Canal Street, passing through the French Quarter, the still beating heart of the city, where the majority of the Creole population lives. Already in use for years, the term Creole indicated those that had been born in Louisiana, distinguishing them from the numerous recent immigrants. Ironically, Spain's short-term control of the area still dominates the architecture of the French Quarter, where lovely courtyards and arcades can be found on every block. As we walk north through the quarter, eventually reaching Canal Street, considered to be one of the busiest streets in America in the mid-19th century, we notice a major change to both our surroundings and the people around us. Although we can hear any number of languages on the streets of the French Quarter, French, Spanish, German, etc. But as we get closer to Canal Street, we hear not only more English, but more and more English with a New England accent. As we cross Canal, the buildings change too. Although wealthy Creoles are investing heavily in the French Quarter, adding to the already beautiful Spanish and French architecture, the buildings on the north side of Canal are overwhelming in their grandeur, none more so than the St. Charles Hotel. It's easy enough to spot the hotel. Its massive 185-foot dome and cupola towers over every building nearby. It's by far the largest building in this part of town, arguably in all of New Orleans, some say all of North America, rivaling the dome of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Although this area of town was barely more than swamp and marshlands in the early part of the century, the new arrivals from the northern United States, places like New York and Boston, They've brought their checkbooks with them and commissioned buildings that make the northern section of the city, what has become increasingly known as the American section of New Orleans, call to mind not the French and Spanish roots of the city, but the industrial capitals of New York and London. Banking is the industry of the day here, both the major interest of the recently arrived northern emigres, but also a necessity thanks to the massive freight passing through the port of the city. By a recent decree of the governor of Louisiana, Banks in New Orleans are licensed to print their own money. 
greasing the wheels even more to allow these institutions to commission ever greater buildings. With ever-increasing power and capital, banks have financed a number of buildings in this part of town. Hotels and theaters, often also bearing the name of their patron bank, have sprung up north of Canal Street as bankers attempt to draw in ever more business, whether wining and dining themselves or potential clients. Our home for the evening at the St. Charles is just one of these recent showpieces of the banking industry, built by the Exchange Bank. Now, the bank spared no expense on construction, hiring the same architects, Dakin and Gallier, that would be responsible for other major buildings in Louisiana. The hotel, which opened in 1837, technically bears the name of its owners, as the Exchange, but locals increasingly refer to it as the St. Charles, a reference to the street where the hotel is located, just two blocks north of Canal Street in the heart of New Orleans' American district. The hotel has only been open for a little less than a decade, but it's already secured its place as one of the finest hotels in the city, if not the country. As we make our way inside, through the Grand Corinthian columns along the front entrance, we already can identify several prominent faces in both local and national politics. We run into another recent northern transplant as we head into the hotel, a Mr. Abraham Hall, who insists on going by the name Oki. He is just as taken with the building as we are. Set the St. Charles down in St. Petersburg and you would think it a palace. In Boston, and 10 to 1, you would christen it a college. In London, and it would marvelously remind you of an exchange. In New Orleans, it is all three. Although Mr. Hall will go on to a prestigious career in New York politics, at the minute, he's here just as a reporter for the New Orleans Commercial Bulletin. And he's not the only reporter here who's looking forward to the banquet. The founders and owners of the major New Orleans newspaper, The Daily Picayune, A.M. Holbrook and George Wilkin Kendall, are also here for the festivities, prominent members of the Club of the New England Society. Tonight's banquet will be a central feature of tomorrow's Picayune, with a full-page spread of not only what was served, but also the numerous speeches and other toasts made throughout the evening. The New England Society boasts among its members some of the most influential citizens of the city, and its guest list is a veritable who's who of prominent local businessmen, newspapermen, military generals, even national politicians. Now, the New England Society has only been in existence for five years, and boasts a membership of only about 100, men only, of course, but celebrates each anniversary with a full-day affair. Since we're not actually members of the Society, and have only secured an invitation to tonight's dinner, We've been whiling away our afternoon in the saloon of the St. Charles, just one of the several drinking establishments on hotel premises. No scruffy Wild West seen here. The saloon boasts an 18-foot-high Corinthian ceiling and is located directly under the hotel's magnificent dome. A grand staircase connects the saloon to the dome, where guests can peer out to the New Orleans skyline. But even in these luxurious surroundings, it's clear, perhaps, why New Orleans is already attracting its reputation as a fun-loving city. Most barrooms, including the one below us here at the St. Charles, are already well-stocked with billiards and other opportunities for gambling, causing moral indignation by more than a few visitors to the city. We've spent the afternoon with Oki Hall, who has regaled us with tales of the city's newfound reputation as a drinker's paradise, even here at the St. Charles. He warns us not to be fooled by the bar's glitzy decor. Woe be to the deputy barkeeper in this retreat is slow of motion or deficient in energy or weak in constitution, there will be music, dancing nonsense, eating and flirting until three o'clock in the morning. Be that as it may, there are certainly worse places to get a drink. 
Some estimate that there are currently no fewer than 530 distinct drinking establishments in New Orleans, a considerable amount given its population of just over 100,000. While the barroom at the St. Charles considers itself a step above the taverns and saloons you can find on any city corner, we can still procure a whiskey drink or two as we wait for dinner to begin. Although the term cocktail as a way of referring to a mixed drink has been used in America for about 40 years by now, and arguably even longer in England, any mixed drink you are likely to procure at a local bar is still pretty straightforward, what we would probably recognize as an antecedent to the old-fashioned, or even the Sazerac, a combination of usually whiskey, sugar, water, and increasingly, bitters. But as the hour grows later, and the society returns from its church service, we move from the barroom into St. Charles's opulent gentleman's parlor, where we join the other invited guests to tonight's dinner. In the parlor, we notice more than a few men in military uniform. The recent declaration of war by the United States against Mexico, earlier in 1846, has made New Orleans a hotbed of political action, and the war is the talk of the town. Unsurprisingly, during pre-dinner drinks, most conversations revolve around the issue of Texas, the disputed territory currently being fought over by both the U.S. and Mexico. Since Louisiana borders the war zone and is a major supply port for the U.S. forces in Texas, there is considerable talk about how the war will affect New Orleans' economy. Now, do you see that man in the corner, the one that everyone's jostling to talk to? The one with all the medals and ribbons on his uniform? That's one of the guests of honor tonight, General George Mercer Brooke himself. He's by now a local legend, having moved to New Orleans in June of this year. He's already earned numerous accolades for his involvement in the War of 1812, and he's particularly beloved by Louisianans thanks to his aide to General Andrew Jackson, the famous savior of the city during the Battle of New Orleans in 1815, which conclusively ended the war with the British, forcing them to retreat permanently from Louisiana and from the U.S. Brooks been recently made the commander of the Western Division of the Army, responsible for all U.S. territory west of the Mississippi. He's in close contact, people say, with General Zachary Taylor, commander against the Mexican forces in Texas. We move into the dining room at 7 p.m., into another sumptuously furnished room at the hotel. Keeping with the Greek Revival style so popular in New Orleans at the time, the dining room is dominated by columns and is over 125 feet long, more than enough room to accommodate the 100-odd folks for dinner tonight. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good and it's rumored that the space can seat over 500. As we take our seats, we notice a few more prominent faces sitting in spots of honor next to the society's president. We can see at the end of the table the former governor of Louisiana, Henry Johnson, Louisiana's Attorney General Elmore, and Henry Clay, the recent U.S. presidential candidate for the Whig Party and the former U.S. Secretary of State. The dinner tonight is presented in the still popular French style. This traditional service, its origins dating back to the medieval period, might seem to us almost like a buffet service, in which a number of dishes are offered for each part of the meal, with guests free to choose among the selection. French service like this requires an enormous amount of food. Hosts considered it their responsibility to provide as many options for their guests as they could afford. 
judging from the variety of dishes. It's clear that the deep coffers of the society have been opened to provide the guests a meal to rival any in France or England. But interestingly, this almost buffet style of dinner service is starting to lose favor in Europe right around this time. A new way of serving food, called the Russian style, in which one dish is presented to each guest for each course, the way we would recognize most restaurant service in 2016, has come into fashion. It will eventually almost completely replace the traditional French service by the end of the 19th century. But don't let this seemingly buffet style of the French service fool you. This is no informal get-together where you grab your own plate family style. Each dish is served by the dining staff in white gloves, preparing each guest's choice individually. Guests are expected to hand their plates to the staff each time they want a new dish, which are prepared away from the dining table on a sideboard. Although we've come to New Orleans, famous home of Creole cuisine and responsible for mouth-watering dishes such as gumbo and jambalaya, unfortunately we won't see much of that on the menu tonight. This is a celebration of New England heritage after all, but even so, the menu can't help but reflect the local produce as well as the numerous international cultures that live cheek by jowl in the city. Shortly after we sit down, we're presented with a choice of soups, along with a selection of fish and cold or what is often known as boiled meat dishes. For soups, of course, clam chatters and pride of place, right along with mock turtle soup. Although turtle soup itself is a local favorite in New Orleans, mock turtle soup, which actually is usually made of calf's meat, is an established favorite in the U.S., served in both boarding houses and presidential inaugurations alike. Any cook, then or now, would find it impossible not to include the bounty of the Mississippi and the nearby Gulf of Mexico in such a dinner. Rockfish, also known as striped bass and pompano, fresh from the sea, appear in the fish cores. Keeping to the French style, these local fish are dressed with hollandaise and port wine sauces. Redfish, probably a form of snapper, is served in the Normandy style, cooked in a combination of butter, flour, and of course, wine. But if you're not interested in seafood, there are also a range of boiled meats presented to each diner, a common early offering in French service meals. This section of the meal is often referred to in 19th century recipe books as relevé, from the French to relieve or to remove because the rest of the dishes in the French style were usually already on the table and would remain as such. This course, except for the soup course, was the only one that was removed in its entirety from the table once guests were finished, hence its name. This course, showcasing some 19th century favorites, take us from the bounties of the American countryside to delicacies from all over Europe. Such is a nod to some of the many communities that make up New Orleans society. Here you can find corned beef and cabbage, as well as slices of the famous German Westphalia ham, cooked in a sauce made by the finest of French champagnes. All testaments to the various English, German, and French ancestors of most of these diners, a common enough theme in this portion of the city. But the absence of any explicitly Creole dishes is a noticeable one, although perhaps understandable in this part of the city, and at this dinner in particular. Growing rivalry between these newcomers to New Orleans and the native population has gone so far as to have the city divided officially into three distinct political municipalities, each self-governing, cementing a cultural and economic divide represented geographically by Canal Street. Sitting here at the St. Charles, in the heart of the northerner-dominated, so-called American district, political and social attitudes are manifest by what is, and more importantly, what isn't, served here tonight. Produce from the northern U.S. can be found throughout the meal. The best of Chicago beef has been sent straight down the Mississippi from the famous stockyards of Fulton Market. 
Turkey with oyster sauce is also here, by now an American favorite, along with other classics of 19th century cooking, such as beef tongue, not to mention calves head served with brain sauce. Keeping with the 19th century's love of boiled meats, boiled buffalo tongue is also on offer tonight, a nod to the animal's continued prevalence in the western U.S. territories, before westward expansion would see its numbers decimated before the end of the 19th century. The removal of the relevé means that we can turn our attention to the cold dishes, what are often known as ornamental. So while the fish and boiled meats were removed in their entirety, these ornamental dishes were exactly that, presented on the outermost part of the table in decorative arrangements in order to highlight the more impressive fare laid out at the center, the roasts and other opulent game meats prepared as the focal point of the meal. These cold dishes, usually a form of dressed meat, are often prized just as much for their looks as for their taste. Our selections tonight, which include chicken, salmon, and lobster salads, are arranged on crystal bowls or platters. The intentional impressive displays of these dishes hints to their future culinary role. Increasingly ornate ways of sculpting these cold meats saw the introduction of vegetables or fruits that could help complement the color scheme of the made ingredient, again adding to the ornamentality of the dish. Ironically, it would be these garnishes, such as lettuce, radish, parsley, even fruit, that would eventually dominate our modern usage of the word salad, rather than simply implying meat or fish dressed with mayonnaise as it does here tonight in 1846. Now, if you haven't had your fill of meat yet, fear not, there's more to come. We next are presented with a selection of entrees, a term still used at the St. Charles in the traditional sense, meaning a complicated meat-based dish, usually accompanied by a sauce. Entree, of course, is a French term, which originally implied entry. The course usually signaled what was to follow, the presentation of roasts and game meat, which had, according to customs dating back to the medieval period, were carved directly at the table, another chance for culinary showmanship. The entrees that we have for this evening have of course been presented in the French style. Their names won't even be translated into English in tomorrow's Picayune when the meal is recounted. They include selections of duckling with pureed peas, topside veal rump with tomato sauce, and stuffed pigeons. Now roasts are a time-honored tradition in dining the center point of meals since before the Romans. Although in private or personal settings, one roasted meat dish would probably suffice. Here at the St. Charles, we're offered a variety of different options, often also usually accompanied by a specific sauce. As opposed to the entrees, however, these are often very simply prepared. Roasting meat was usually still done on a rotating spit before a live fire, particularly for large restaurants or hotels, as at the St. Charles. The meat would then be presented whole to be sliced on the table. Although many preparations of roast would be the same whether in London, Munich, or New Orleans, any offering of game meat often was slightly more connected to the local landscape. It's important to remember that game meat still features heavily on any American table, whether in the home or here at the luxurious St. Charles. Since we're dining in December in 1846, the fall hunting season has provided the hotel with six different varieties of duck for guests to feast on. Not in the mood for duck? There's also pig, wild goose, and even bear to try. Now I know it's hard to even contemplate dessert at this point, but you won't want to miss this. As the center dishes are cleared away from the main course, they are replaced by ornamental sugar work and 14 different kinds of delicious sweet dishes. As 19th century feast goers, if we hadn't already been impressed by the variety of foods on offer, the sugar work would seal the deal. Massive, intricate sculptures are carefully brought to the table, representing international and historical scenes. 
One depicts St. George slaying the dragon, another the famous American Revolutionary War site of Bunker Hill. Confectionery is a prized art, and such cosmopolitan hotels like the St. Charles would make it their business to employ craftsmen that can produce such masterpieces for their discerning guests. Although it is possible to snap off a piece of the dragon's tail or part of Bunker Hill, why ruin such lovely work when there are such a number of other sweet dishes to tempt you, including a selection of mints and pumpkin pies, plum puddings, all treats that evoke the northern or even English heritage of the company here tonight. Lafayette cakes, named for that hero of the Revolutionary War, and not often seen on southern tables, are also here tonight, a delicious and distinctly American-made form of gingerbread. We can wash this all down with some nice Roman punch, a classic post-dinner drink in 19th century America. Although very popular with the growing temperance leagues around town, as the traditional recipe calls solely for fruit juice, sugar, and water, it simultaneously is being adopted by those looking to disguise their drinking habits. Spiking Roman punch has become a countrywide pastime, so be careful how much you swig down. After the desserts are brought out, we listen to a number of speeches as we sip our punch, celebrating the society's illustrious five-year heritage. Many toasts are raised with the quote-unquote virgin Roman punch, and it's close to 12 before the company finally gets up from the table to return to the gentleman's parlor for cigars, snuff, and even more drinks offered by the sellers of the St. Charles, such as port, Madeira, claret, sherry, and hawk, a beloved German white wine. It's here where we'll take our leave of the company, as they spend the rest of the evening discussing the future of Louisiana, the Mexican-American War, and the role of New Orleans in American politics. Most of the men in this room will have a hand in the direction of New Orleans, let alone America, over the next ten years. And right now, the future of the city looks bright. New Orleans will remain a cosmopolitan hub for all of America until the onset of the Civil War in the 1860s, drawing up the numerous banks set up by prosperous New Englanders, as well as the river traffic along the Mississippi. The St. Charles Hotel itself will burn to the ground in 1851, only to be rebuilt shortly thereafter, reclaiming its title as the grandest hotel in New Orleans, unfortunately without its fabulous dome. It will last until the 20th century, until it closes permanently in the 1970s. But the feast from tonight in 1846 will endure in the annals of the Daily Picayune, a newspaper that would eventually become the dominant paper for all of New Orleans, currently known as the Times-Picayune. And New Orleans, of course, is as resilient as ever, still considered to be among the best places for food in America, if not the world. The feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. If you're interested in any of the dishes mentioned on our journey today, we'll put up some recipes for mock turtle soup, Lafayette cakes, Roman punch, and more on our website, www.thefeastpodcast.org. And for more information on New Orleans cuisine and other historical tidbits not mentioned in the podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And remember to come feast with us again. Until next time, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.
tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.